Hello everyone and welcome to Guidepost. I'm Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal. Our guest on today's episode is Kevin Davis. My new book, Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing, was published by Pegasus Books in the United States last October. The paperback edition is coming out in May 2021. The inception of the book goes back to early 2017. At around the same time as I was talking to the future publishers of the CRISPR journal, I was beginning to draft the outline of a book that would be a brief history of CRISPR, or so I thought. That proposal quickly morphed into something quite a bit more ambitious, namely editing humanity. Many soundbites from earlier episodes of Guidepost are sprinkled throughout the book. Now, while I did toy with the idea of somehow interviewing myself for this podcast, I quickly came up with a better idea. And that was to ask Theral Timpson, the host and founder of Mendel's Pod, a podcast series that I've really enjoyed for a decade or more, if we could borrow the tape, to use an old analogue term, of his recent conversation with me that featured on the programme. Theral happily agreed, and so that's what we have for you coming up in just a few moments. This episode of Guidepost is brought to you by Mendelspod, celebrating 10 years of in-depth interviews with scientists, CEOs, authors, and other newsmakers in the world of genomics. Hailed by Forbes magazine as the official chronicler of the era of precision medicine, Mendelspod takes you behind the headlines, putting a human voice to life science. Listen at mendelspod.com, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you download your podcasts. All right, so here, in case you missed it, is an encore presentation of my appearance on Mendelspod, hosted by Theral Timpson. We talk about popular science writing, genetics, CRISPR's cast of colorful characters, and the ethical dimensions of hereditary genome editing, all topics that feature in the book, Editing Humanity. Has someone made a painting of you with the double helix yet? Uh, <laughs> no, not yet, not yet. At this point, you, you, you really belong in a famous painting somewhere with Watson well, my, and Craig and Francis Collins. And well, well, I did co-author a book with Jim Watson, but I don't, I don't uh, talk too much about that unless you really want me to. But it's uh, all of this interest in genetics is is born out of deep frustration that my my own research career didn't pan out a little bit better than it did, and so as a in a move of desperation, I I moved into science publishing and got a job with Nature as a young junior biology editor 30 years ago, because I figured that was the only way I was ever going to get my name published in the world's most prestigious science journal. It and worked. I've stuck with it, yeah. Yeah, it worked. Well, I can see you half naked, you know, up on the Sistine Chapel with the finger of God touching man. and um, you, you really belong in... <laughs> okay. Um, so your book starts out... I mean, you, you have so many amazing stories in this book. Uh, the fact that you have been at the places where these things happened or you know the people involved was just so much fun for me. 
you know, you, you, I mean, how did you remember all this for one thing? <laughs> Uh, I I was very fortunate. Uh, This all sort of uh, came together about uh, four years ago when I was looking for a new job and I uh, approached uh, the publishing company Marianne Liebert uh, just outside New York City, uh, publisher of some very good journals, including Human Gene Therapy. And I said, I'm just getting really excited about this field of CRISPR you should launch a new journal devoted to CRISPR and genome editing. And they loved the idea and basically invited me uh, along to join the company and get the thing off the ground. But at the same time, I was uh, coalescing and gestating this idea to write a book about CRISPR, a popular science book, but one that would still try to be honest to scientists, who I hope are uh, in the uh, in the audience demographic, so that they could feel in a kind of a more visceral, that is our demographic, kind of human yes. way, yeah, 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 uh, how CRISPR was discovered, why it's so important, why it's just caught fire and, and sort of uh, traveled uh, yeah, around the world, and of course, uh, what some of the bigger technological and ethical questions are surrounding the use of this technology, and that's certainly the sort of the, the twist that the book takes uh, halfway through. So it starts out with the CRISPR baby story. That's probably <laughs> the hot story of the decade, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're on this 18-hour flight to Hong Kong. So yeah. take us back there. A friend has told you this uh, genome engineering conference is going to be a snooze fest. Yes, and, that's right. <laughs> and then it wasn't. Yeah, I- <laughs> I figured, I figured at the end of 2018, I had a little bit of money left in the travel budget. There were a couple of meetings, in one in Hong Kong and one in China, I had my eye on. And I sort of you know, went to my boss and said, you know, I, I realize I can't go to both of these, but I think one of them would be justified. And so I picked the bioethics conference in Hong Kong. It was the second meeting of this large international group that Jennifer Dowd in particular had played a very big role in, in getting together back in 2015, when the first reports of gene editing in human embryos had been published. And uh, so I thought it would be an important meeting, um, and I'd get a lot of good material, both for the journal and maybe for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, the, the popular science magazine that I am also contribute to. Uh, and then literally touching down in Hong Kong, uh, pulling out the iPhone, turning on Twitter, and the first thing you see is this new hashtag, and it takes in your jet lagged in that foggy jet lag sleep deprived state you it takes a while just takes a few seconds for the neurons to kick back in and think hang on what what is going on here um and then it's suddenly the the, the pieces all started to fall into place um well, uh, well, well, it, yeah well, well the pieces. pieces were that this uh, amazing story by uh, antonio regalado um from mit technology review had uh, burst uh, burst onto the scene, basically saying that he had very good, solid documentary information that uh, a Chinese scientist named He Jiankui was, if he had not actually overseen the birth of CRISPR babies, it was only a matter of time. And one of my favorite passages in the book is sort of re going back um, and trying to figure out how Antonio broke that scoop, because the scoop was supposed to come from the Associated Press. The Associated yeah. Press had been um, kind of, they, they worked out as a, a very uh, confidential arrangement with her, Jiankui, uh, and a gentleman named Ryan Farrell, a PR professional. who his, uh, his PR person, yeah, yeah. who had bailed yeah. from his firm 
to right. work with Hei Kui, which we right. we can call JK from now on, right? We'll which call him JK, you, right. Which is what you do in your book. By the way, I know Ryan Farrell because he, he used to pitch me stories. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, go on. Um, so, JK so and Farrell were working a deal with the AP. Um, to break the story. So whenever JK was ready to publicly announce the birth of these babies, either from a big international conference like the one that was about to happen in Hong Kong, or because his peer review paper was about to get published and he had submitted a paper to Nature, which didn't get very far. Um, but the AP was ready with the full story, the names of the babies and all of those details. Marilyn Marinsoni or Marilyn Marchioni. Marchioni. And, and they were as flabbergasted as anyone, I think, when, when Regalado's story uh, broke out. So it was very fun working out the pieces. Why was Regalado so hot on the trail of JK? And it turns out that he'd been in China a month earlier uh, as to interview some of the human embryo scientists, these guys who'd edited uh, human embryos in the, in the uh, years from 2015 to 2018, Virtually every paper published on gene editing and human embryos had been from a Chinese group. So that was the place to go. And he went with a documentary film crew. Uh, the producers of this film, which has not yet come out, were Cody Sheehy, a filmmaker, and uh, Samira Kiani, who's now a professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, Kiani and Regalado, they're just hanging out, waiting for their next interview. Kiani gets a call on her phone from... Uh, Ryan Farrell, the aforementioned Ryan Farrell. Um, and it turned realized that they're both in China and they're about an hour apart and they should get together. So a meeting, a fateful meeting occurs in the lobby of a hotel in Guangzhou uh, in which Kiani brings along Regalado on the condition this discussion is off the record. And Farrell arrives with a scientist, the scientist that he's now working for, and that is JK. And over the next two hours or so, this group, uh, this motley group, are talking about gene editing in, in primates and human embryos and the public image of science in China and whether JK might be somebody that they could bring into the film at some point. And at the end of this discussion, which is completely off the record, the filmmaker says, let me just turn on my camera. This is Cody Sheehy. I'll just turn on the camera, the video camera, and you guys tell me what you felt. What, what did you learn from that discussion? And you can almost see the sparks and the light bulbs popping in Regalado's head, because while JK hasn't said he's editing humans, all the pieces were there. And it he didn't take much, much to connect the dots and say that's clearly the direction he wants to go in and is probably going in. So Regalado goes back home to Boston and for the next three weeks is sort of you know frantically searching Google, looking for the the smoking gun, and then he eventually finds it. Uh, that's that's what um, um, tips him off to even know to go looking for a document for some stray document somewhere. Yeah, which he finds yep. a, a document filed for ethics. Uh, for, for what he found the the uh, sort of belated uh, posting registration of the clinical trial, uh, as well as uh, some other more specific documents that were attached to that uh, registration note, um, including a spreadsheet of uh, it's just Chinese characters and numbers. But there's some telltale signs that what he's looking at are, are DNA counts or assays of um, actual pregnancies, and uh, it just again provided 
a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence that uh, these were that pregnancies were underway for uh, 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 women where the embryos had been edited at the CCR5 gene, this uh, uh, gene uh, edit that would uh, essentially um, prevent these uh, these babies from uh, developing HIV if they were exposed. Right. Um, right. And then, of course, at the Hong Kong conference, uh, J.K. walks into a stunned. Hush, right, silence. right, but 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 just to just to go back. So so yeah. you're going to a snooze fast conference, and when you land, reg, basically Regalado has has broke the story. Yeah. Um, and we find out that there are actually some CRISPR babies. Yeah. The germline yeah. has been edited, and so a huge story breaks. Yeah. And this conference becomes ground zero for the story because J.K. had been scheduled. To speak of this, he had been scheduled, and that was the first question that everyone wanted to know: is well, was he still going to show up? He was scheduled to speak on the second day as part of a four-person panel, and we get to the uh, the opening ceremony in this beautiful, lavish auditorium at Hong Kong University. I greet Lab Chi Choi, the guy who discovered the cystic fibrosis gene with Francis Collins 30 years earlier. He's now the vice chancellor of Hong Kong University. He greets me with a big smile because I, I knew him. I did my PhD with a, in a group in London also searching for the CF gene. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I actually wanted to. So I want to come back to the CRISPR story, right? Yeah, um, because sure. you come back to it in your book. But I, yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. Um, and you mentioned this at first. You began your career as a geneticist. Yeah. Uh, working, <laughs> working on the CFC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happened there? I'm, I'm just curious yeah. a little bit. What? I did my PhD in, uh, in uh, at part of the University of London uh, with Bob Williamson and Dane K. Davis uh, as my sort of supervisors. Try the big group, big group by British to, uh, British standards at the time, trying to find the gene for cystic fibrosis. This was the mid-1980s, so pre-Human Genome Project. It's yeah, When I started my PhD, we didn't even know on what chromosome the CF gene sat. And now fast forward to today, and we have these custom bespoke drugs that companies like Vertex Pharmaceuticals have developed. So it's yeah. amazing how far The CF come. story has actually one of the great yeah. stories of genomics, yeah. isn't it? So I got a PhD uh, as part of that CF group, uh, but and then really wanted badly to go to see what life was like in the United States and picked a, got a position at a, a, a top uh, cell biology group in uh, in Boston, in the Boston area at the Whitehead Institute. Um, but I think in retrospect, I made a, just a big mistake. I should have stuck with human genetics, which was the one narrow slice of science that I knew a little bit about. I kind of strayed a little bit too far, got out of my depth. Um, and then it just became a vicious cycle where experiments stopped working. I lost my morale and motivation. And it was literally in a moment of sort of sad <laughs> desperation, flicking through the pages of nature, um, watching another gel, you know, uh, turn to turn to uh, failure uh, on the lab bench. And then suddenly my eyes lit up as I glanced upon an ad in the back of nature in the classified ad section to join the editorial staff of nature. And I thought, bingo, that's that's the job for me. That's my eureka moment in the lab. And uh, so I was interviewed by John Maddox and uh, the, the, the sort of the who's who of nature at the time and felt very fortunate to get 
a position on a very small editorial team. I laugh that the the current staff of Nature seems to be about three or four times bigger than it was back in uh, back in 1990, but it was still the same weekly magazine. Uh, and then my big break came a year later when Nature's management decided to launch a spin-off journal. Um, this would be the first time that Nature had been branded in a in a an offshoot uh, peer-reviewed journal. And the question was, well, what what should it be? Nature immunology, nature neuroscience, nature genetics. So they sort of informally polled all the the, the editorial team, and no one seemed terribly keen to maybe lose their power or influence. Um, But when they came to me, I said, are you kidding? That's a fantastic idea. And it's a long story, which I've written and and published elsewhere, um, that uh, Nature was publishing a lot of good human genetics papers, but I felt that was just the the tip of the iceberg. We were letting a lot of really good papers slip through our fingers. And I I kept a sort of a record of these. And so when we put the uh, business plan for nature genetics together, I was able to quickly assemble a table of contents for the first issue of the papers that nature, against my judgment at least, uh, if not better judgment, uh, papers that nature had let uh, had let go to sell or the New England Journal of Medicine or other journals. And I think that was a very powerful argument. And nature genetics was an absolute critical and commercial success. Um, and okay. it provided the template for nature medicine and then there was just they were off to the races and now every year pretty much nature's launching another one or two you know they're, they're just now just uh, uh cloning and and continuing to build on the franchise so what's the greatest story about CRISPR as a tool in your view i was particularly chuffed i was in the office um uh, of Eric Sonfeimer, who's a leading CRISPR researcher. He's now a professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And he goes rummaging in his computer for, oh, there's a grant I must show you. It wasn't funded, uh, Kevin, but you've got to see this. And it was from back in 2009, I think it was. And it was basically a five-year grant proposal to essentially de- develop and turn CRISPR into a gene editing uh, uh, technology that would eventually be brought to work in mammalian cells at the end of this five-year program. It wasn't funded and his patent didn't go anywhere, but it showed that um, there were some really cool ideas and great minds thinking about uh, about CRISPR in the run-up, of course, to the Nobel Prize winning um, uh, discovery and work of Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier uh, in 2012. I think... The other part of your question, Farrell, is in terms of the greatest use of the technology, I think the one I'm really stuck on right now in the clinical context is the work that's just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, on the uh, successful treatment of Victoria Gray for sickle cell disease. Okay, yeah. This is a one, this is an abs, I mean, I, the number is, it's an N of one, uh, but that paper actually uh, also uh, presented results on another patient with another blood disorder. Um uh, and this has to be extrapolated and confirmed and validated in many more patients. But the idea that eight years after CRISPR was sort of the gene targeting, gene editing method was first described in this science paper from Dowden and Charpentier, that we've actually gone in and essentially successfully treated a woman with one of the most notorious and devastating genetic diseases that affect humankind, a sickle cell anemia, I mean, that's just mind-bogglingly amazing. And as I've been telling yeah. some people... We've been trying well, Nobel- so long at, at the gene therapy. Yeah. yeah. At gene therapy and, of course, trying to treat sickle cell disease, the first molecular disease, which we've, we've known the molecular basis of this for 60, 70 years. 
So this is all fantastic. And I think it's a fun, a fun parlor game is we've had the Nobel Prize for chemistry, right, for the development of the basic fundamental technology. And we'll find out in the coming years whether there will be another Nobel Prize potentially for medicine. And I would not... Relating to CRISPR, you mean? Yeah, well, relating to CRISPR or an, another allied gene editing technology. And we can talk about that in a minute. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, but let's go back to who you call uh, Thelma and Louise. Yeah, yeah. Which would be well, Doudna and Charpentier, right? In no particular order. I don't know. It's that, came, that quote came from a, uh, a French newspaper uh, profiling uh, Charpentier. And uh, I, I mean, this is what been well documented. Uh, Jennifer Dowder in her own book, A Cracking Creation, um, talked about meeting uh, Charpentier in Puerto Rico. Um, it was an interesting meeting because Doudna, uh, they, they get the, they, they share the credit equally, 50-50, for the pivotal paper that they published. And of course, they've now shared the Nobel Prize. But it wasn't quite a meeting of equals when they first met in Puerto Rico at a conference in 2011, and I sort of went back through Medline and sort of just tallied up. Doudner was an HHMI Howard Hughes investigator, meaning she'd reached, by definition, the, the very upper echelons of American science, had published something like 20 papers in Nature and Science and Cell, had trained with not one but two Nobel laureates, um, uh, Tom Cech and Jack Shostak. Uh, Charpentier was uh, a, a much lesser known scientist sort of uh, laboring in this sort of rather obscure area of CRISPR microbiology, um, living a somewhat nomadic existence, trying to find the right, the right venue, the right uh, location to where she could have the independence and support that she wanted to do the kind of science that she wanted. So she was currently working at Omeo University uh, in northern Sweden. So when they met, it was a little bit sort of a David and Goliath kind of thing, you might say. Um, but uh, Charpentier was less known, but she had been working on CRISPR longer. She had. That's true. That's true. And Doudna has said many times how how just uh, impressed and struck and uh, really enamored she was of Charpentier, um, the person, but also the the ferocity of the interest in the science. And it was a perfect match, the, the microbiologist and the structural biologist and they went off to the races. They were also helped because the, the leading uh, postdoc and grad student in their respective labs uh, almost came from, the, came from the, the very similar parts of Eastern Europe, uh, Martin Yunek from uh, the Czech Republic and uh, Charpentier's grad student from uh, Poland. They, they could sort of almost speak, Yunek uh, could almost communicate in Polish, but I think they settled on English in the end. So that helped bond and uh, figure out the collaboration and then the clinching piece was when uh, Martin Yunek decided to take some of the, the, the RNA components and put them together in this now, what we now call the single guide RNA. And that was really the, uh, the key step in developing this gene targeting method, um, which, of course, set the cat amongst the pigeons, uh, set many groups looking to uh, confirm those results and then to, uh, extend them into human cells and mammalian cells. And that's where a lot of the Nobel controversy has come about because, of course, as I'm sure you discussed on this program, um, Feng Zhang and George Church independently got CRISPR gene editing to work in human cells about six months later. And I think in the run-up to the award of the Nobel Prize, there was a lot of discussion about how, how do you split the credit for CRISPR genome editing 
when you've only got three prizes by by Nobel tradition to give. And um, I uh, there's some speculation in the book because one of the first vignettes in the opening chapter is uh, the scene in Oslo at the Kavli Awards two years ago when it was Downer and Charpentier, but they shared the prize with a Lithuanian biochemist named Virginia Shiksnitz, delightful man, who was um, unlucky enough to have many of the same elements as Downer and Charpentier in 2012. But he sent his paper earlier to sell, again, one of the big mega uh, you know, most elite journals in, in the world, and Cell uh, decided not to even review the paper, let alone publish it. Hmm. And by the time, so you know, many, many, many great papers have been, uh, have lost priority because the journal in question just you know, didn't, wasn't passed. on the same wavelength as the author and passed, exactly. And by the time, uh, Shiksnitz resubmitted it to the Cell's sort of, you know, second tier journal, Cell Reports, same result. By the time he'd reformatted the paper and sent it to another, a good journal, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, but by the time they'd reviewed it and were ready to publish it, everyone was talking about, well, not everyone, but many people were talking about Doudna and Charpentier's paper, and the Shiksnitz story was uh, was largely forgotten. And I remember I, I didn't twig until I read a great piece in Wired by uh, Sarah Zhang, who's now at The Atlantic, who... Uh, basically just sort of threw the spotlight and said, you know, uh, science is, is such an interesting process because, we, you know, all the attention goes to the people who made the discovery and, and captured the headlines. But let's not forget the other people. There's so many stories. You're and, talking about um, a history here. Yeah, right. exactly. To go so back I now and read yeah. the history. Yeah. yeah. And, and really your book, your, your book is, this is history. I mean, you're you're playing the role of the historian here, it, and it makes for such interesting reading because you know I thought I knew all this stuff, you know, really, and I've interviewed a lot of these people, but yeah. um, but I'm going whoa whoa I I can't skip through any of this. It's just yeah. so fascinating. I didn't know that Doudna grew up in Hawaii. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and then the story about her father leaving the the copy of the double helix on her bed. I mean, half, the half the characters in the book have been inspired by Jim Watson's by the Jim Watson's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I noticed that. Yeah, um, we've had the Nobel Prize uh, was awarded, and of course, so that third potential slot was left empty by the Nobel uh, Committee. Some, you know, the uh, Mojica in Spain certainly was getting a lot of uh, support from the Spanish press. Many articles talking about how he would be, you know, one of Spain's few uh, deserving Nobel laureates, but that uh, that didn't happen. And that was one of the most startling moments for me in reporting for the book. I went out to the salt lakes of Santa Pola, just south of Alicante, with Mojica, and we spent a lovely morning. It looks like a wildlife reserve, but it's really a massive uh, salt industrial factory for, for mining and extracting salt from the Mediterranean Oh, that's a factory ocean. Yeah. Oh, so this okay. is where these yeah, are where the I, microbes... I saw footage of that on this fabulous NOVA program. Human nature. Yes. Human nature. Yeah. So Mihika's showing me this and he's laughing because he says, you know, every, uh, every once a month I'm dragged down here by some photographer or some film crew who wants to capture me posing at the water's edge where these uh, um, uh, microbes uh, live because they're adapted for the high salt environment. And this is what Mahika had made his life studying. 
And he said, the funny thing is, when I started my PhD program in the early 1990s, the samples were already in the lab back in Alicante. So I come here pretending that I'm recapturing the samples. I never did that for my PhD. <laughs> he so turned into an actor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he tells me about the, the pressure he's feeling uh, and all this attention from the media uh, and other other uh, scientists and other other uh, corners in in Spain and Europe, and I said, well, you know, you're living the dream, uh, Francis. As we're having a beer at the end of our visit, um, you're living the dream. You're about to give a go to Australia for a month to give a lecture tour. Um, you're just waiting for the Nobel Committee to make up its mind. Um, what's it like for you? And he says, Kevin, I hate it. I hate it. He just and he said, I just want to be left alone to go to my lab and do my work and go home to my wife. He just wanted the quiet life. It was fascinating to see this gentleman um, who you would imagine uh, so many scientists would, be, would covet to be in that position, waiting for these uh, prestigious um, prizes and the financial rewards. And it's like he wanted nothing to do with it. So that was a very surprising and devastating uh, moment, a very poignant moment um, uh, in the reporting of the book. I, yeah. I can understand that. You, yeah. you can understand that, right? There is sure. the side of the scientist who wants to be, you know, left in their lab quietly doing science, right? Um, now, Doudna, on the other hand, she seems to be okay with all of this. She seems to be okay. Yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true, although... I don't was, know her. I don't know her. You, you've Lisa, met her. Yeah, my friend Lisa Jarvis um, from Chemical and Engineering News uh, did a wonderful story um, uh, about Jennifer just about, a, just about a year ago called A Day in the Life of Jennifer Doudna. And it was exhausting just reading it because Jennifer's almost like a politician, you know, being shepherded and escorted by her her people, by her her, her wow. staffers from yeah. meeting to meeting, keeping the schedule, changing the schedule. Um, yeah. So it's it's exhausting just sort of just pretending to live in those shoes. But, the amazing but, but thing she's about, done she's done great with that, and someone has to be the ambassador in a way, right? Because well, of I, the um, because of the whole ethical side of this and the whole PR side of this. But you say somebody has to be the ambassador. I think that's an, an area that she deserves, and I hope really I I give it to her in the book enormous credit because it's one thing to do the science and sort of you know maybe hold a couple of. Uh, uh, write, a, write an editorial or something to say uh, this technology is posing some ethical problems. It's an, quite another to then take it up upon your shoulders to be the instigator of the workshops and the conferences um, to really bring the international community together. So, um, and she's doing all that. She's building institutes at Berkeley. She's spinning off uh, companies. Um, and uh, and at the same time, still uh, running and leading a uh, an absolutely world class um, research group that continues to break new ground in pushing new areas of CRISPR, devising new technologies, uh, new CRISPR systems. So um, uh, yes, an amazing scientist and an amazing person. Yeah, you talk about uh, several Senate hearings that you've been to, and. Um, the expression you see on Doudna's face or some scientist's face <laughs> when senators ask certain questions. She was asked about uh, super soldiers, and I think perhaps the first uh, Christmas Senate hearing, and I, you could sort of hear that the, the, it wasn't a very intelligent uh, um, uh, question. Um, and I think where uh, it's another reason that um, 
it's a lot of attention from Dow and many other scientists as well that um, we have to keep uh, CRISPR. We have to have intelligent conversations about CRISPR. It's one of the motivations for writing the book to hopefully raise the sort of scientific literacy of people who aren't necessarily scientists, but may be in positions to have some uh, responsibility or power over how we regulate uh, CRISPR. Because um, we talked uh, earlier in the program, Farrell, about the Hong Kong conference. And in the immediate aftermath of JK's talk, I heard whispers from the conference floor, I won't say from who, but from some very prominent um, scientists uh, saying this is this could be an existential crisis for the gene therapy field if people start to really fret about the experiment that JK did on human embryos and misinterpret that as this is what we're trying to do when we treat Victoria Gray for sickle cell or we treat a patient for blindness. So we've got to keep these two things entirely separate. And I think to the great credit of the CRISPR community and, indeed, and, and others, um, we've been able for the most part, to do that. So the gene therapy, the gene, the clinical gene editing programs that have shown us so much early promise are moving forward. There's now several programs uh, in the clinic. At the same time, a separate group of scientists through the National Academies of Sciences have just issued a major report on what do we do with human embryos if we want to edit them? What is the future of hereditary human genome editing. And I think they've laid out a roadmap, a pathway that if we wish to, as a society, we can go down if we want to think about uh, editing human embryos. But here are the, the report lays out the, the caveats and the scenarios and the criteria that must be met. Um, and it's going to be a very narrow road. And we're really talking about just a very small number of couples um, for whom embryo editing might be an appropriate solution if they want to have a biologically healthy child. Okay, so I want to get into that with you. I want to go all the way to designer babies, and let's drive this car all the way out. Uh, but first of all, there was one more character that I want to get in there, and that was, I know he's a friend of yours, Fyodor Ernov. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're now into part two of the book. We're going to talk gene therapy here. Um, you introduce him in part two, um, and... I know you've been fascinated with him for over the years. He's a scientist from Russia. And, um, you know, I didn't know this before, but you're suggesting that he actually came up with the name genome editing. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, so he was um, – he's a fabulous uh, – Theodore has forgotten more about genome editing than I will ever know. And I've just written a 450-page book about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, definitely someone you should have on the program. He is now uh, a, an uh, associate director uh, with Doudna at the Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley. But for many years, he was a, at Sangamo, which was really the first gene editing company. So one thing I learned in the early stages of reporting the book is that we associate CRISPR with gene editing, but we, we shouldn't forget that there have been other technologies. Zinc before. fingers. Zinc I, yeah, fingers. yeah. I, I interviewed Sangamo several times. Yeah. I was yeah. following this story. Ryan Farrell was, you know, was their PR yeah. person. He was feeding yeah. me the stories, yeah. you know, before yeah. CRISPR came and took over. That's right. And in 2011, uh, the journal Nature Methods said genome editing is its method of the year. This was, you know, a year before anyone was really breathing 
the idea of CRISPR as a gene editing tool. Um, so Fyodor, uh, one, one long interview in the middle of a Keystone conference, I think, uh, and um, I just sort of you know, just turned on the tape recorder, held it in front of his nose and just let him talk. It was his life story. It was how we, what was going on at Sangamo. And Sangamo published really a, a pivotal paper in Nature in 2005. And the term genome editing at Fyodor's suggestion uh, graced the cover of Nature. And that may have been the first time, the first time that genome editing, uh, the phrase was, was coined. Um, and uh, he's also a leading character in the film, the documentary Human Nature that you referenced. Yes, and you also mentioned this right after saying that both of his parents were writers, right, with the whole editing yeah. thing, right? So, yeah, so I, I found that interesting. You know, I mean, this history business is, is kind of interesting. When yeah. You see the, uh, where, where all these things come from and how they all fit in. Yeah. Well, I hope he I hope he writes a book on gene editing one day because uh, uh, th th that will probably be the best of the bunch. Okay, so on Mendel's Pod, you know, we have mentioned in our monthly review show. I mean, from going way back, each time a, a, a gene therapy would be approved by the FDA, and then there were just too many to keep mentioning. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it, this is really becoming the age of gene therapy. Yeah. You know, whether it was macular degeneration, a rare disease. Um, hemophilia, now the sickle, cease, uh, sickle cell anemia you're talking about. And when one would hit, another would hit, um, it just, it's actually not as big a story anymore. Right, right. right? It, it's not a big a story. And one of the stories that um, I thought would get more attention than it did, nothing to do with genome editing, but there was a gene therapy trial uh, midway through 2020 that um, uh, in which a couple of two or three of the young uh, patients being treated for uh, a rare disease called X-linked myotubular myopathy uh, died um, in scenes that were perhaps a little bit reminiscent of Jesse Gelsinger, too high a dose or receiving the highest dose uh, of, the, of the viral vector. And then um, I haven't seen the final report, so I'm being a little careful here, but the, the, the early thinking was that some a massive immune response um, uh, that the, the, the patients couldn't come back from. So gene therapy, there's still a lot of work to be done, despite the the, the plethora of, of trials that are currently underway, hun literally hundreds of trials and more and more of these drugs getting approved. Um, but there's still, I think, some very real uh, safety issues that have to be sorted out and a lot of interest still in developing non-viral vectors so that perhaps we can just dispense with viruses once and for all, um, although the viruses that we're currently using are many times safer than the ones that were, were being popularly used in the, uh, in the early days in the 1990s of gene therapy. Let's get back to uh, J.K. and yeah. that story where we left yeah. off. Um, so you had you had researched this. I mean, and and um, you're heading to this conference now. One thing interesting. Well, I mean, you actually got in and, and learned where he was born, and you know, for this book, and you can tell us all about him now, which is well, really he... interesting read. And in in this section on him, you say a lot of people likened him to. Dr. Frankenstein. And I'll admit, even the blog I wrote about him that week, I had a picture of Frankenstein's monster um, because well, I, I felt like the whole industry created him and that he was. He was Frankenstein's monster because the industry created him uh, or the science industry. Um, but you say, no, actually, a better comparison for him would be Elizabeth Holmes uh, that 
the disgraced founder of Theranos. So why do you say that? Well, I think there were a lot of there was a lot of sentiment uh, in the immediate aftermath that what he had done was uh, was disgusting. It was horrific. It was potentially criminal. Um, and I agree with all of that. Uh, uh, but it was also easy to immediately just dismiss him as a rogue, as this sort of very secretive scientist. Um, and it's true. He hadn't shared um, his plans with on the, on the public circuit. He was going to many of the, 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 the big CRISPR conferences, including the ones at Cold Spring Harbor. But when he stood up to give a presentation, he was very circumspect and he didn't betray, didn't let on any of his plans about, about uh, doing clinical uh, genome editing. Um, but he did bring into his confidence a small circle of, uh, of uh, some very prominent American scientists, some of whom, uh, including uh, some of whom have stayed, stayed in contact with him even after he had um, was his name was in disgrace. He'd gone back to Shenzhen after the Hong Kong conference and was immediately put under house arrest. So I think there's a some more some more pennies to drop. What was clear to me in, in the reporting I did was that here was somebody who came, was academically very gifted, very bright, did a PhD at Rice University uh, with Michael Dean, a talented uh, bioengineering professor, um, who is apparently still under investigation at, at Rice University, but I've not heard the conclusion of that. He then did a one-year postdoc with Stephen Quake at Stanford, um, and Quake, this was at a time when Quake was um, building his company Helicos uh, and developing new uh, genome sequencing tools. Um, and so when JK went back to China uh, with lots of funding and a new professorship at a new uh, major new university in Shenzhen, it was with uh, this idea of building a clinical genome sequencing technology or platform, borrowing some of the technology from Quake's company, which had gone bankrupt. And you would think for a young 30-something professor, here you are suddenly installed as the CEO of a rocket ship um, genetic diagnostic company with the whole huge Chinese clinical market at your fingertips. You'd think that would kind of be enough for most young entrepreneurial <laughs> scientists. Uh -huh. um, but clearly it wasn't enough for JK. He became yeah. very enamored of um, Robert Edwards and um, put up a slide of, uh, shared a slide with some of his colleagues and some investor meetings, you know, showing him, showing some of the famous iconic scientists and how quickly their ideas had gone from sort of crazy ideas to mainstream acceptance. And he thought that embryo editing uh, would be one of those technologies. HIV was the, the logical topic, the logical uh, disease for him to go after. We knew that he, everyone knew the gene that you would have to knock out. Uh, the, the gene editing process would only be required to um, inactivate the gene, disrupt the gene, not necessarily engineer a specific base change, which would be hard with the CRISPR-Cas technology um, in the hands of a, of a, of a novice uh, researcher. And HIV uh, was getting a lot of, um, a lot of public attention. It's a, although a very, um, a very common disease still across portions of China, uh, people, have, who have a, people who have the disease are stigmatized. But from the, the, the first lady of China has made HIV a very public cause of hers. And I wondered if that might not be another reason that he was drawn to uh, potentially tackling HIV as a uh, as for his first major heroic 
um, uh, embryo editing experiment. But as we now know, uh, that, that experiment was, uh, was uh, uh, condemned for so many reasons. Um, and one interesting quote that I uh, put in the book from uh, a scientist at Arizona State University, uh, uh, Benjamin Holbert, who had been in correspondence with JK, uh, and uh, indeed some of the couples that had been uh, recruited for the clinical trial. And a lot of people suspected that JK had just uh, uh, really deceived or just uh, rushed the informed consent process. Um, he made he was in the room and he shouldn't have been. Um, and they felt sorry for the for the couples who were enrolled in this trial. But one of the couples said, you know, people can say that we were we were kind of scapegoated or we were victimized um, uh, or we were coerced to do this. Uh, and in a way, I'm paraphrasing, uh, in a way they say we were, but not because of anything that JK did. We were compelled to do this because of the stigma that HIV has in this country. We felt that we had no other option. So that was mm. a very kind of uh, a very interesting uh, perspective. And um JK, of course, is serving uh, now. He's in his second year of his prison sentence in China. And I would hope that when he, when he comes out uh, or other, other scholars will be able to shed a little bit more light, um, I suspect, and I say in the book, that I suspect he had some very high-level support uh, from China. He was uh, well-known. He put a, every, his WeChat account was like a Kardashian Instagram feed. It was full of celebrities, Michael... Deem and Quake and um, uh, Craig Mello, the Nobel laureate from UMass, was frequent photos with Craig were was an advisor to his direct genomics company were frequently posted. He received millions of dollars in funding, um, and a very prominent Chinese scientist sat in on some of those informed consent meetings. So I don't think he was this sort of secretive rogue scientist that some people have imagined him to be. So so how do you feel all of that about about that two years on? Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about that, right, that moment yeah. where you're yeah. sitting there and he comes out. You, we, you didn't know if he would talk at the conference and there's all the cameras there and everything. And you were there. You were, yeah. <laughs> you were sitting there. And it was quite a moment in history. Front uh, row uh, with, with literally hundreds of press photographers crammed in on one, along one wall of the auditorium. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, it was as if a K-pop band was going to, you know, walk on stage and perform <laughs> or something. And instead, J.K. Everyone's building up for this uh, this moment, and he's introduced, and then there's silence because nothing happens for the next thirty seconds. Finally, a door, a side door opens, and he walks on stage, um, carrying a leather briefcase, uh, and shuttles across the stage. And all you can hear, no applause. All you can hear are the camera shutters just chattering and <laughs> thundering away. And as he starts to talk and present his 20-minute scientific uh, lecture um, about the the uh, Lulu, the birth of Lulu and Nana, um, the cameras are still chattering away, and the moderator, the host of the session, Robin Lovell Badge, stands up and, like a British headmaster, rushes over to the to the bullpen with the press photographers and says, "Will you please shut up? Stop photographing! You've surely got a photograph by now." Um, and they they duly uh, uh, quieted down, and uh, the rest of the presentation took place. He tried to answer questions. He didn't duck too many questions, um, although he declined to take any questions from the press. And I think the first question was really the the, the key question. It came from David Liu uh, from the Broad Institute, who said, 
what was the unmet medical need that you felt you were trying to address? If you were trying to uh, oversee the birth of babies who would not have HIV, because one of the parents has HIV, there were methods that you could use, standard clinical methods, including sperm washing, that you could use, and ironically did use during the whole uh, mm -hmm. IVF gene editing procedure. So why was the gene editing even necessary? And he, he tried to, he couldn't answer, he couldn't answer appropriately in the sense of justifying what he did for that particular couple. His answer was framed in, this is just the first step in potentially offering hope to millions of couples um, at risk of transmitting HIV yeah. without being able to connect the dots. So, so, so let's get into the germline editing. Um, you quote George Church with three pro arguments for germline editing. Um, and they're pretty persuasive, actually. One is uh, that it's just much more efficient and cheaper than offering somatic gene therapy later on to a billion cells. You know, here you have the chance with just the one cell. Uh, or is that two reasons? Um, I, think, I think, well, I think it, one or two reasons. I think it's, um, you know, from a purely theoretical um, argument, there's, th th that's worth just thinking about because one of the challenges with somatic gene therapy, particularly if you're trying to treat a muscular disease like muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy, is you've got to produce huge amounts of virus with the gene therapy or the gene edit modality inside in order to treat uh, that patient. It's one thing to do what Editas is doing, for example, and treat blindness by just injecting a few, a few viruses in the back of the retina to, 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 uh, to hit the, the photoreceptors that you're trying to correct. It's quite another if you're trying to treat a blood disease or a, or a muscle disease. So uh, when, uh, and each one of those gene editing events um, maybe carries some very small but some finite risk of uh, off-target mutation or something. So when George says if you go into a human embryo, one advantage that you have is you're just doing this one time. And if you can control all the other parameters, well, that's great. But the important um, a counter argument to that is that DNA repair and the processes that govern genome editing in human embryos is still a really a black box. We we JK thought it would, he could understand it and he could go ahead with his experiment, but there have been a series of studies published uh, during the course of this year, 2020, that uh, make it very clear whenever we try to do gene editing in a human embryo, things go awry and they go mm -hmm. awry pretty badly mm -hmm. um so anyone attempting to do any kind of crispr clinical experiment on a human embryo right now um should absolutely stop what they're doing because they no scientist could say with exact precision what that what how that gene edit is going to uh, is going to pan out we just don't understand enough we're seeing too many rearrangements and deletions and mutations off target not just off, off target but also on target as well okay so um we have to and it may be that the the, the dna repair systems in human embryos are modified or just different than what happens in in uh, in, in, in adults or in, in you know, after we're born so this requires this is why researchers like Kathy Nyakan in London and Dieter Egli at Columbia University in New York and Shukrat Mitalipov in Oregon um, those are perhaps the three leading groups in uh, that are outside China 
those are the three groups that have documented these rearrangements this year. And uh, so we're looking to them and others to give us a better, much richer understanding before we even think about gene editing in human embryos. Okay, so you're saying uh, even if we um, even if we did find a medical case um, to answer David Liu, um, that the, we're so far away even on the science is what you're right. saying. So the and we've realized do, that more. Yeah, that we've realized that yeah, more. Okay. Medical case, the medical cases do exist, but they're few and far between. And the upshot of the National Academy's report that I mentioned a little earlier is that um, there are, if you think of uh, – uh, to a, a couple who both have sickle cell disease, so a serious recessive genetic disease. So mum has two recessive, uh, two copies of the sickle cell gene, and dad has two copies of the sickle cell gene. They are, by definition, going to give birth to a, to a sickle cell child. There's no combination of genes that could give rise to a healthy child. So if this couple once where both members have sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, another important recessive disease, serious recessive disease, if they wanted to have a biologically healthy child, um, pre the standard method for doing that, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where you would do the IVF and then select the embryos that you want to implant, mm -hmm. that option is off the table. That's not available. So those are the circumstances under which, if we know this method is safe, and if all the relevant, if, if the countries and the health authorities in that particular country give the thumbs up, then those are the circumstances and situations in which we might one day, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, potentially see gene editing be applied to help a small number of couples achieve that result if they were desperate to have a biological child and, and obviously not adopt a healthy child. Um, but um, uh, that's been a, you know, a year's worth of... Um, this international commission uh, researching and taking testimony and, and writing this big report um, for the purpose of really just safeguarding the birth of a few healthy children. So uh, we have to sort of figure out, for, at least for medical reasons, whether gene editing is, is if that's the, the path we want to go down. So let's talk designer babies. You do in the end. We can talk disease prevention and then you can talk enhancements, right? Yep. Uh, but more and more, uh, and I've done this podcast 10 years, uh, you've been in the field since <laughs> you were trying yeah. to be the geneticist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Laura Hersher, who both of us know, uh, on her Twitter handle, she has a podcast, The Beagle Has Landed. Yeah. On her Twitter handle, she has, it turned out to be more complicated than we thought. Yeah. 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 So not only the ethics and the medical part, but the science itself is what, uh, you know, is what we just barely said. Um, so even though we have this incredible tool, CRISPR, uh, which made the editing so much simpler, easier, um, I wonder if it doesn't make it appear too easy. If it, if it isn't actually a kind of illusion, you know, if this is not what made JK fly too close to the sun, as yes. you so aptly put it and call yes. it Icarus, yes. um, you know, as others will in the future, right? Does this, does the ease of this tool, this is my question to you, does the yeah. ease of this tool disguise for a generation of scientists the complexity and mystery of biology? Uh, yes, I would largely go along with that. Although, as we just discussed, this trio of reports, only one of which has been peer-reviewed and published, but I think the others will be very soon, on the difficulties of applying CRISPR 
in human embryos, I think will give the entire field great uh, pause, pause. Um, to uh, better understand the biology before anybody ever attempts trying to do this in a clinical uh, context. Um, yeah, the whole, you, you have to talk about uh, designer babies, but I think um, we know that for any of the, for, for most of the uh, traits that we might want to uh, modulate when we think about um, you know, complex traits like intelligence or athletic ability or any of these sort of old chestnuts that come up, um, uh, we'd have to modify, particularly for something like intelligence or ma mathematical ability or something, we wouldn't even know where to start. And then even if you thought you had one gene that you knew played an important role in intelligence, uh, you couldn't predict uh, if you did tweak it, what the what the bystander, what the collateral damage would be. Um, you make you make a change in one gene or one pathway, and something else is going to go up or go down. And um, I think that would just be it's a fool's errand. So uh, I don't think anyone's really seriously talking about that. But it's fine for us in sort of you know in these nice places like you're in Utah and I'm in New York. But um, uh, an interesting thing that came out of a week after the JK um, saga in Hong Kong was um, a, a, a fertility clinic in uh, the Middle East emailed JK. They didn't know he was under house arrest at the time, but they emailed JK to say, uh, we were fascinated by the presentation of your work last week. Uh, we are thinking of uh, doing some very similar things. Do you, do you offer any kind of course uh, experimental training? Um, for our team to come out and visit. So here was a private clinic, um, uh, potentially uh, not really worried about ethical concerns, um, just really wanting to dive in and offer the technology. And I'm so I dare say there may be some other uh, geneticists and entrepreneurs who are, are thinking along that those lines. And very briefly, I talk about this in the book. Um, this this discussion doesn't just pertain to genome editing. So a company that's been in the news um, the last year or two is a fertility clinic right here in New York or New Jersey called Genomic Prediction, co-founded by Stephen Shu, where they are offering um, polygenic risk score calculations on IVF embryos to calculate or offer potential risks for probabilities for different um, for different diseases, not just cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, but common diseases like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and interestingly and very controversially, cognitive ability. So they're saying to would-be clients, we can tell you if any of your embryos is on the low end of the cognitive ability bell curve, would you want to have that particular embryo or embryos implanted? Um, Probably not. Well, what they're not advertising is that if they can calculate the low end, they probably figure they can also calculate the embryos that are at the very high end of that scale. They're not proposing to offer that uh, uh, here in the United States, but there may be some other countries, Singapore has been mentioned, uh, where somebody, a government may come to them at some point in the future and say, we would love to offer this uh, this service. And uh, so there are some people who believe that the technology is reaching that point. Yeah, it's absolutely a fascinating read to see the history of where all of this comes from. Um, yeah. Just like your story with Ernov, um, that he calls it editing, um, which yeah. is, of course, a, a metaphor borrowed from from his parents' profession. Really. That's right. That's right? exactly right. Um, yeah. 
and and um, and but also to see how complicated it is. Um, yeah. You know, this is a history of events. You know, and to see that science is a messy business. Science is a history of different things coming together. Um, when we read it in the news, it all looks a lot easier than it actually is. Well, I think the fun thing and where the book ends mostly optimistically is that we're just, despite the Nobel Prize being awarded, um, uh, literally the day after the book came out, um, uh, this is just the beginning, right? We're seeing new tools added to CRISPR. CRISPR is now being developed into diagnostic tools for COVID-19 and many other diseases. And I think the the area that I'm most interested in is um, the way that CRISPR is being adapted and tweaked to develop new types of gene editing, um, in particular base editing, and now a new riff on that called prime editing, um, that I think shows great promise for even more precise um, uh, uh, substitutions in the DNA sequence where you don't have to completely cleave the double helix. You just have to nick it and you can engineer a specific base changes to fix a genetic disease. Um, so that's incredibly promising, not in the clinic just yet, but I'm sure it will be soon. Um, prime editing shows great potential. And I'm sure some of the minds that have been at the forefront of CRISPR are now thinking, well, you know, gene editing is now... Uh, we've got so many tools. Maybe there's new technologies for gene editing that will actually just leave CRISPR alone completely, and we'll move on to something else. Um, given given the way this field is uh, is accelerating so rapidly, so incredibly exciting times for you know, clinically, and then of course for agricultural biology and George Church and George Church and his woolly mammoths. Um, so, so many uh, applications, uh, uh, amazing times. Kevin Davis. Journalist, founder of the CRISPR Journal, historian of biology, DNA, and CRISPR like no one's told it before. 